Welcome to another episode of The Keeg Live. It's that show brought to you by The Keeg, where we talk about a different uh, geek topic uh, every other week. Uh, today's topic is masculinity in comics. I'm your host, Dimitri Pereira, and I have two amazing guests that are primed and ready to talk about this topic at hand. Let me introduce the guests, and then we'll get to it. First, we have... Uh, uh, Dr. Gabriel A. Cruz. Do you like that middle initial, Gabe? I'd use them like formal documents and stuff. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my signature name. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Uh, uh, how, how are you doing today, Gabe? I'm doing pretty well. Um, I've spent the day moving furniture, so it's nice to sit down and do something that ain't that. So, but I'm happy to be here and to talk to you and Alexis. Yeah. Uh, you, you were moving furniture. Now you're going to be moving mines, I think, if... Hopefully, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it, it's a metaphor. I'm, I'm working yes. on it. I'm working on my metaphor game. Um, you, you, you have a history with this subject matter, with tangential subject matter. Uh, what's your background? Yeah, so um, I'm a comic studies scholar. Uh, I have a uh, bachelor's and master's in communication studies and a uh, PhD in media and communication. And so my particular corner of the world is looking at um, pop culture, specifically comic book and superhero narratives. Uh, and obviously those overlap quite a bit, but they're not exactly the same. Um, and how they handle issues of uh, race, class, and uh, and uh, gender. So, you know, what that looks like, different iterations of it, what are the messages associated with it, what kind of stories do we endorse, who gets to be the good guy, the bad guy, or the good anybody else or bad villain, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's, that's what I spend a lot of time watching Netflix and writing about it is a big part yeah. of my life at this point. <laughs> do, you, do you have to cite Netflix as your source? I do. I have to go to IMDb and cite um, and to, to cite that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. But it's also a lot of reading comics. And so I'm trying to get my school to pay for my Marvel Unlimited um, subscription as like uh, professional development funding. But yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I uh, I I find citing comic books really weird, especially because like uh, uh, given all of our history with comic books, it's like yeah 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 like it's it's uh, common knowledge like Green Goblin killed Gwen Stacy great why do I need to yeah. cite my source whatever yeah. but I I did a uh, I did a research project recently on the Comics Code Authority mm-hmm. and I had to cite all my sources but for comic books. And like I, I, I talked about that Harry Osborn drug uh, issue that Stan Lee wrote, and I had to cite that. And I was like, "But what issue is it?" And I had to look that up and do all that stuff. But you know, I'm yeah, better because of it. It's frustrating though because there's no real like there's no set way to do it. Every mm. publisher I've ever had is like, "Well, you you know, try it this way." It's like, "Okay, well, fine. I guess we'll do it that way." And whatever, yeah. just you know. Anyway, that's a thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 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 happy to have you on the show, Gabe. Uh, so thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, join us. Of course. Uh, for those of you who are out there watching, we are live streaming. If you can see our faces, that means you're watching a live stream. Um, we are live streaming to YouTube. We are live streaming to Facebook. We're live streaming to Twitch. And our number one streaming platform is volume.com. So if you're on volume.com slash the Keeg Show, you can see the chat. You can chat with us, bring up questions, topics, uh, uh, that sort of thing, and we will be able to see it there. Uh, but if you're listening to us and you can't see our faces, that means you're listening to the podcast and you are listening to that wherever you get your podcasts. So we're on like five different uh, podcasting platforms, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio. So I think that's it. 
but uh, you can digest us any which way and wherever you are, it's all valid. Uh, as long as you give us a thumbs up or a follow or a subscribe or whatever, nothing that costs money, but just, uh, just uh, let us know you're out there. Um, if you are not seeing our faces, then you're wondering, why is Dimitri saying us? Uh, because I have a second guest and uh, we have uh, uh, the wonderful Alexis Blake. Uh, Alexis, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? Doing good. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. The last episode that I had you was Black Widow, and yes. we got down to the nitty gritty. We did, yes. <laughs> it was yeah. a good episode. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it, it's always a pleasure to have you. And then Gabe was on Race in the MCU. I believe that was uh, that was Gabe's last yeah, episode. You, you bring me here to discuss uncomfortable subject matter, Dimitri. That's, That's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> Which is yeah. fine. Yeah. And uh, and like Alexis is a hard hitter because, I mean, one could one could say we just talk about Black Widow and uh, from a just strictly superficial Marvel fan perspective. But no, we got down to the nitty gritty. We did. I don't I don't really think it's right to talk about Black Widow without talking about, you know, the way the character has been both utilized and underutilized and all of the all of the things that that means. So, right. Um Luckily for everybody for today's episode, uh, it's going to be a shallow, superficial dive. Very, no, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> into just like cool guys. It's just mm-hmm. a bunch of cool guys that we're talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we're, we're looking at the intersection. Uh, well, it's all going to be very intersectional. But what I mean is uh, masculinity and how that pertains to the medium of comic books, right? Um, and sure, that can mean a lot of different things. Um especially masculinity in a very insular way on how men are represented in comic books, but also the effects of masculinity on, on uh, uh, other things, other systems. Um, there's a lot that we could talk about. This is going to be a, a two hour episode, but uh, of course this could be a whole series. We're, n- we're just, we're going to dip our toes in and see how much that we uh, uh, get covered. Um, uh, Gabe, you, you, uh, What's your history with, uh, like, academically with masculinity in comics? So, um, for my dissertation, uh, and for folks that aren't familiar, a dissertation is basically a small book that you write to get a PhD. Um, I looked at uh, a variety of things, including the sort of gender representations of five different characters, and that was uh, Captain America, Jean Grey, Luke Cage, uh, Mystique, and Miles Morales. And so I looked at how their gender uh, was expressed over a variety of different um, issues over the years, that kind of thing. And then since then, I've done work on uh, looking at different characters. Um, one of my favorite projects I did uh, is uh, from Negan from The Walking Dead as a sort of representation of uh, the alt-right um, masculinity, uh, that mm. kind of thing as well as uh, currently working on a project right now with some friends of mine that we are trying to get published on how the Punisher represents a certain kind of disposable masculinity uh, and that sort of thing. And I just did a, um, I just had a a book uh, chapter published uh, in a book called Afrofuturism and Beyond in Black Panther, I think is the title of it. But the the chapter is on uh, how Killmonger is represented as someone with a hybrid identity, which includes a masculine uh, identity as well. What that looks like for people who exist in the on the in-between space between two cultures and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a component of a lot of the stuff that I do. Okay, Um, that 
uh, luckily, we're going to use all that. We're going to use all that. So we will uh, uh, we'll definitely touch on all of that. Uh, Alexis, um, I love your content. And your content touches on so many different things. Um, uh, do you have any? Do you have any introductory thoughts on this subject matter before we even like dive well, in? I will say my the the bulk of my education background right is in psychology right. and criminal justice and criminology. I, I focused on research, so my main area of research interest was looking at how we perceive race and gender and class and how that affects our reactions to different events. So for example, how we as a society react to a white woman experiencing assault versus a black woman experiencing assault versus a white man experiencing assault and so on. And one of the things that is so important to that conversation is media, because in so many ways, media, you know, at its at its best influences and at its worst defines the way that we as society society perceive those things. Mm-hmm. And I think when we when we talk about masculinity and comics, it's it's so interesting to me, especially now, and I'm sure Dr. Cruz can speak more on this, but because for so long the target audience of comics was predominantly white men. And so really the way that comics portrayed masculinity directly affected its primary viewership in a way that I think we still see when we look at things like, you know, fan culture and the way toxicity has manifested there. Mm-hmm. Um, you you bring up a good point um, about the target demographic, at least when like comics were starting off. And I mean, even up till this day, I think that uh, media in general influences culture culture influences the media right there's this like and then that affects history and history affects that and so there's this weird like uh uh uh, give and take tug of war type of situation with all this um we can we can start off almost chronologically but with the specific character superman kicks off comic books uh, uh uh as far as we know before that it's pulp comics pulp comics there's horror comics of course there's different adventure type things, uh, noir, but Superman kicks off what we consider comic books. Um, and Superman comes around in 1938 uh, during what the great the Great Depression. He's fighting landlords, slumlords, mm-hmm. uh, uh, beating Corrupt up people. Coal bosses, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and this is before we even get into World War II, where uh, I mean we'll get to that, but. Um, uh, did you, uh, uh, Dr. Cruz, did you have uh, thoughts about Superman as like the archetypical, archetypal, archetype of uh, of superheroes? Uh, I got thoughts that y'all can call me Gabe or Gabriel. That's, uh, <laughs> Dr. Cruz ain't necessary. <laughs> <Only> my students. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So in terms of uh, uh, Superman, um, he is so... He is this very interesting archetypal character because there were all kinds of spinoffs after him. And even he was largely influenced by, you know, the pulp comics that came before characters like the Phantom um, or I think of like Doc Savage, who didn't really have any powers, but he was this adventuring, you know, man with a very strong jaw and, you know, broad shoulders and that kind of stuff. And of course, Superman in his original iteration was not the 
essentially a god that we have now, right? He was super strong. He couldn't even fly. He could jump real, uh, real far. And, uh, you know, he had ice breath and that kind of thing. But what's interesting about him is in that sort of construction of masculinity and bearing in mind that he was created by two uh, Jewish Americans was that he was very much an advocate for the vulnerable. In his original iteration, he was not born to, uh, or he, he was not found by the Kents. He was in an orphanage. Um, and he grew up in an orf orphanage and they tell that story in like three panels, like it's very like done and done. And then like uh, an issue or two later, they retcon him into having been found by the Kents and what have you. But this idea of an orphan raised in a orphanage who was, you know, among the most vulnerable of people, then becoming a savior of sorts is really this sort of, uh, anyone can do it. Anyone can be the hero. But in particular, if you look this way, and obviously that they made him a man as opposed to a woman says something as well, um, not just in terms of what they thought of might have been marketable, but maybe their own aspirations or what their own thoughts on, on that kind of thing were. Because, of course, um, Wonder Woman, the first, uh, you know, mainstream uh, female superhero wouldn't come around for, you know, a couple of years after that. But yeah, so but he is very clearly sort of the imprint. I mean, how many variations of, uh, you know, the strong man who does good and and is near uh, invincible, at least in that capacity. And that's a very shallow representation of Superman, but how many iterations of that have we seen, right? Yeah. Um, it, the century is almost like that, except that he's also got some real other problems, but you know, those aside, right. uh, <laughs> uh, the psychosis aside, he is, you know, yeah. sort of almost like a carbon copy in that way. Yeah. yeah. There are so many carbon copies of Superman because mm -hmm. Superman is so old. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, he's, you know, he's been around for such a long time. That, of course, I mean, DC itself has copied Superman for oh, yeah. itself, uh, not just Marvel, you know, copying Superman and those archetypes. Um, there's an interesting thing where Superman is based in American values or like a lot of these heroes are and they're tied to that. And what are those values change over time? Um, did you have any did you have any thoughts about that, Alexis? Well, I think just going off of what you said, right, like to 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 say that Superman is based in American values. Right. And I, I think that he is. Right. But uh, or I think that was the intention. Rather. Right. But, you know, straight off to say, well, our American values are strong, white and male. Right. Essentially. Right. Like the, the things he is able to advocate for for people are because, um, as Gabriel said, you know, he, he he looks a certain way. And I think that's just an interesting place to start comics and a, and a place that sometimes I, I feel we have come a long way from and sometimes I feel like we haven't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a, um, something really interesting that I think applies to this, and that is uh uh, there was a scholar uh, who back in the 90s wrote a paper or, or a very famous uh, journal article, um, the fellow named Nick Trujillo, and he outlined what he considered was the five points of um, what, it mean to, what it meant to be hegemonically masculine. And for those not familiar, hegemonic masculinity or hegemony is uh, sort of the dominant culture, right? So this is what it means to be masculine in the dominant way, the way that's celebrated by society and that is, you know, given the most advantages and things like that. And his five points were, number one was the use of physical force and control. The second was occupational achievement. The third was familial patriarchy. The fourth was frontiersmanship, uh, being that adventure, that kind of thing. And the fifth was heterosexuality. 
Now, for his case, he used a uh, Nolan Ryan, a baseball player, uh, to sort of outline these components. Um, but I think you see that absolutely show up in Superman, as well as in most of the other leading men uh, of some capacity. Now, the issue of like familial patriarchy, I think, kind of comes and goes because, um, you know, it, it's no secret that a lot of these heroes fight getting married tooth and nail. Uh, <laughs> And then yeah. they do get married. It don't happen for long. Um, no. But there's always that capacity to be that way. And certainly use of like physical force and control. I mean, um, Superman was, you know, slapping around slumlords and, you know, corrupt uh, corporation owners. Uh, Captain America was too, right? A lot of his early uh, comic villains were like corrupt CEOs and captains of industry and, and what have you. So, yeah. Um, but it's a formula that works and has continued to work. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um- I, I think what's interesting is that there, I mean, there was, there's a statistic and I don't know the actual percentage, but it was almost equally girls and boys reading comics in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, whether they were reading the same books uh, can be argued. There was a long line of, there's romance comics uh, that was like a huge genre back in the day, uh, which is where we get like characters like Passy Walker and like Archie and like those type of uh, characters. And I believe that those, de- like the demographic for those comics were, were more female than male versus like the horror comics, which were more male than female. But for the most part, the media of comics or the medium of comics, uh, not the genre, uh, was primarily, you know, uh, it was split. And I think that like each of them are like teaching different values. Uh, and then we kind of get rid of the romance comics at a certain point. And I think that represents a shift in viewership where it's like, oh, yeah, girls don't read comics anymore. There is nothing for them to read. Or we uh, perceive that girls don't read comics. Right, right. It's all in quotes. For anyone watching the podcast, I was doing quotes there at some point. But, like, yes. Uh, um, but there there becomes a shift when uh, Seduction of the Innocent comes out. Is that when the shift happens? Is that when we're perceiving this, like, so, I, I don't know. So um, Seduction of the Innocent, I think, was 1954, I want to say. Okay. I think it was, was mid-50s. Um, and uh, so up until that point, um, at their height of the 1940s into the early 50s, comics had, like, there was some, I remember reading an estimate that there was about 100 million comics in, in like, uh, circulation every year, Right. Uh, for perspective, in 1945, the U.S. had 139 million people, right? Mm. So someone was reading this stuff. Right. And as we know now, you know, a lot of those people were women and have continued to be pretty consistently over time. Um, mm. With Seduction of the Innocent and the eventual development of the Comics Code Authority, right, which said that you had to do X, Y, and Z, and, you know, the bad guys can never win, uh, certain acts of uh, violence can never be depicted, uh, that kind of thing, um, acts of romance can never be depicted, and, and all of those sort of morality, uh, things from a very rigid perspective, it simultaneously, I think, halved within the first couple of years, the, the number of comic book publishers, um, Obviously, DC and Marvel sort of stayed the course and they were managed to win out. But then the one, a lot of the folk, a lot of uh, industries went underground and started to create comics that were, you know, you saw a boom in the horror genre. You saw like eerie and creepy magazines start to pop up, things like that. Um, And I think, I don't know what the numbers are, but I think the perception is that more men were reading those because it would be unladylike to do so. Now, obviously, that doesn't track with reality, but. but I think that's sort of where we get this perception. 
that that's the case. Um, and because characters like uh, like Wonder Woman were absolutely hamstrung by a variety of things like, um, oh, what was the guy? Th- who created Wonder Woman? What was his name? J- James Marster? Jason? No, James Marsters? Mar- Mar- yeah, Marston. Marston? Yeah, yeah. Marston? Dr. Okay, yeah. Marston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, James, like... Not James Marston. Is that Spike from Angel and Buffy? <laughs> Yes. I believe. Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah. so then not him. Not, not him. Yeah. Uh, Marsters, Marsden, Marston. There's yeah. always like uh, one of those three. Yeah, in I, think, I think his name was like Bill or something. But yeah, Marsden. Um, he. Um, yeah. Willie. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you know he at one point sort of dropped the ball with with uh, Wonder Woman, uh, which is like he became overworked or whatever. And so he was writing like three or four different comics. And so that's why in one of them, she joins the Justice Society uh, and becomes a secretary who's not yeah. allowed on missions. Um, yeah. And then combine that with when he dies and other people pick her up and they're trying to comply with the Comics Code Authority and all that kind of stuff. And so you really see the promising start of female characters get nerfed. Um, and in a big bad way, and so I think the in, in the intuitive response is, oh well, combine the fact that the underground comics, which are not very proper for women to read, are picking up, and combined with the fact that uh, there's just not in it anything in it for women, as though that were any kind of factual truth, um, then intuitively women must not be into comics, um, right. and that perception then shapes. Who are we trying to sell to? Who is still reading this stuff? And that leads to, well, we need more manly men, right? Uh, because right. that's what boys want and all that kind of wildness. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, there's a question that I want to pose to Alexis, but but also <clears throat> jumping on that seduction and innocent thing. It was also a shift back into forcing the medium to have conservative values, Right. The, the, the thing about Batman and Robin, we're like, they're gay. That goes against what we want as Americans. Uh, we're also it, it's also what around the time of the Red Scare. Is that when uh, Seduction of the Innocent comes out? So we're talking about American values versus those atheist commies over there. We have to stick to our morals. We have to stick to our conservatism. Uh, Wonder Woman can't be tying people up. There's a there's a BDSM aspect to it. Why is she living with all women? Uh, we, we can't have, we have to, you know, go do that heterosexual path. Um, uh, but something that I wanted to touch on uh, with Alexis is, uh, uh, as a woman, uh, when people say comics are just read by men, like, it, it's such a huge thing, and it's it's not true. But like, uh, what are your what are your thoughts on that? I know you must have a million thoughts on that thing. But I, I just wanted, I wanted to double back to that because I think that like, honestly, like as a kid growing up and these are something that's, that's coded in me, uh, uh, you know, over time, like socially coded is like, yeah, only, only guys like comics. We like the punching stuff. We're just like, it's for us. It's not for women. What are you doing in a comic shop type situation? That's obviously not me now, but what I'm saying is that like, (laughs) Uh, 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 what are, I mean, what are some like thoughts about like comic books are for men? Well, I, I think it, it kind of stems from the perception of what men and women like, right? That there is a specific type of thing that men like to read and that there's a specific type of thing that women like to read and they're different, right? I actually, right. this isn't about comics, but I, I saw a, a 
recent analysis of the romance novel genre that was really interesting um, actually this past week. And it it was by a woman, a scholar, who was basically saying, you know, that women created an entire genre to really tell men what they wanted in relationships and how they felt about it. And men have spent the last 50 years laughing at it and saying that it's not real literature, right? It's like our attempt to communicate and it's not getting anywhere. And I I know one of the first times I, I walked in a comic book store, I said that I was interested in Hawkeye. I wanted to read Hawkeye comics. And And um, I was led to specific comics about his relationship with Bobby Morris, right? Because for some reason, that was what I was going to be interested in. I wasn't going to be interested in in Hawkeye as a person or as someone who was very involved in the deaf community at the time. Like, I'm not going to be interested in that aspect of Hawkeye. I'm going to be interested in him because he at one time dated a woman and then arguably, you know, took, took steps to destroy the timeline and universe for her as if that's supposed to be some sort of like positive thing for me. So, I, I I think kind of, you know, the, the problem is that we still, I think, in many ways have that perception that, like, there are things that men like to read and there are things that women like to read, right? And, like, um, even as a woman reading comics, I, well, I must read Black Widow, right? I must read this and, you know, I, I must read Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel must be my favorite, favorite thing because I'm a woman reading comics, so... I don't know if that answers um, your question, but <laughs> no, no, no. That 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 does bring up a, a lot of great points, and I think uh, it, it sucks that that's part of the that struggle uh, uh, in a way. Uh, that culture, uh, I think, it, like gender roles are such a big thing, right? In like any any of uh, in an American culture and anything. But the point being is that like there are specific comics for girls. There's specific comics for guys. Let's take that at like let's broaden that. It's like. If everybody cooks, but there's are specific things that women cook. There's specific thing that men cook. Men barbecue and we do steaks on the grill and then women bake. And like, like, uh, maybe women can cook more, but it's for the family. It's a family size thing. And like, it's just this weird thing that they're like, uh, uh, there are certain genres that women write and there, and like certain genres that guys write and any crossover is considered weird. And I would so, say, in and sorry, I would I would say yeah, in no, comics no. too that it it creates this interesting feedback loop, right? Because the idea is that as a as a woman reading comics, if if there is a, a romantic story in the in the comic book line, right, that type of masculinity is what I as a woman should be attracted to, right? And so mm. when you're looking at a lot of those relationships, you're looking at relationships with people like Steve Rogers, right, who is is kind of that started as that token American ideal of what masculinity should be like so it creates this this feedback that like that is what I'm expected to want in a relationship and also that men are expected to satisfy that in a relationship right that that's the type of masculinity that they must strive for and that I must look for right what's interesting about that what stands out to me Alexis is that um I'm gonna guess that the comics that you were geared towards and particularly with that Hawkeye run uh were probably written by men I'm gonna imagine Right. So the idea is then, well, the woman wants to read comics. Let's give her a comic book about romance because that's the thing that women like. But also it's romance written by a dude. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think what men want is like the, the underlying factor of like all of this, whether they're writing female characters or men, male characters or writing romance. It's like if the writers are men, it's for men. It's that it's the male gaze. Right. Mm-hmm. So. When we draw, uh, when we draw, when they draw, when I draw, I mean, I do draw, but like, that's not what I'm talking about. But uh, 
you know, people compare like, well, the women are big and busty and they have like no waist uh, whatsoever. And uh, but like the guys are buff, too. So mm-hmm. like we're all, you know, but like whose purpose does that serve? Uh, and, and in the case of that one, uh, was it was it who drew that one iconic picture of Captain America where he's big? Liefeld. 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 Yeah. He's, but it's not busty. It's like a huge chest because he's manly. He's super yeah. strong. And like Rob Liefeld's women's backs are always like curved and like mm. in a way that like is not, does not make any sense. But the goal mm. is to push the ass out and the boobs forward, right? Like, yeah. It's, it's, it's so weird. Um, it's, yeah. Uh, something I wanted to touch on is the value of strength for male characters, like actually like the power of strength is mm-hmm. such something that literally every uh, male like comic book character has. So this is kind of something that's interesting. Um, obviously it's not a hundred percent the case, but, uh, and I'm not, this is not original thought. This is based on some scholarship that I've read before. And that I've noticed myself is that you see things like physical strength across the board with almost every superhero character in particular with men, because the men tend to be drawn in a very sort of uh, hyper, not anatomically, anatomically correct way. Right. But yeah. even then there's a double down on the physicality for uh, men of color. So for example, um, you look at the powers uh, that a lot of uh, white male characters have, and they include super strength, but they also include other stuff as well. Things like, I don't know, Superman's heat, uh, heat vision, or um, in the case of like Xavier, he doesn't have um, super strength, but he has psychic powers or Magneto for that matter, right? Who has magnetic abilities in addition to a 12 pack. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I aspire to look that good when I'm that old. Um, yeah. But then you look at characters like, uh, to child, uh, like like Black Panther or Luke Cage, where almost every aspect of their powers is rooted in physicality, um, or characters like uh, I'm thinking of another one who comes to mind. Uh, Miles Morales comes to mind. Um, that's why even variations of that, like Static Shock, were such a big deal when they came out because they're like, oh, you don't have to have a super buff dude be. Uh, you can be black and a superhero without being a variation of the buck stereotype, which is hyper physical, hyper violent, uh, and in many cases, hypersexual. Um, or shoot, that reminds me of, um, those are coming from uh, one of the original hero for hire runs where Luke Cage saves a woman from being, um, sexually assaulted. Uh, uh, she is, um, she goes on a date with a lawyer. He's actually, the lawyer is actually adapted into the Netflix series. He is the lawyer for, um, uh, for the, who's Cottonmouth's sister? What's her name? Uh, I you forget. Know, I mean, it's it's Alfrey Wood Woodward, right? But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But what? it's 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 her character for. She, I mean, she's she's a big bad for season yeah. two, right? Her lawyer yeah. on hand in this original nineteen seventies comic that that adaptation of him was very much like he took this woman out on a date. He was uh, expecting certain exchanges. Uh, she goes to Luke Cage and he knocks the taste out of this guy's mouth. Um, but in that case, it's very much a physicality and they're both drawn and depicted in a way that emphasize their physical strength. Um, right. And it, there's a, it's a terrible line from like, uh, again, the 19, the early, the first run of Luke Cage where he's trapped and he's, the line is literally something to the effect of, I've never been much for thinking, but I bet I can break my way out of this. And I thought, oh, oh no, oh no. 
this is not good. Um, yeah. But yeah, so physical strength across the board for all these characters, but even more so with heroes of color, I've noticed. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Uh, Alexis, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I would just say that I, I think it's especially interesting to talk about the perception of that as well, right? Because I think I think largely our perception is that white men with physical strength are doing it for good reasons, right? And black characters or characters of color with physical strength are also, you know, violent and they fly off the handle, right? And they're loose cannons. And that's very much, you know, even when when comics are trying to create, you know, characters across the board that are hyper-masculine or, or you know, have hyper-strength, that's still a difference that we see in the way that white men versus men of color are portrayed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you bring up a good point. Um, something that I had heard years ago is is when applied to women specifically, the difference, the different, like, is the woman aggressive or is she assertive? What's the difference between those two words? Is she bossy? Is she confident? Is she arrogant? What is she, you know? And uh, that also then applies to like a character like Luke Cage, where it's like he's. He's a, like like characters of color that are super strong are aggressive. Those muscles aren't just for show. They're not to protect people. They're to punch people. They're to mm-hmm. like rip people apart. And there's like a like a visceral um, uh, um, um, uh, element to that, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that doesn't necessarily get applied to characters like Superman, you know, or Captain yeah. America. They're there, yeah. you know, to protect. Their muscles are there to to save people, unless it's one of those Elseworld stories where they're you know the villains or that kind of thing, and even yeah. that's in such a way that's beyond the pale, right? Like, oh, right. this is clearly Superman would never be this way. He would never literally rip the Joker in half. That's not the Superman <laughs> we love, um, right? But yeah, which this brings to mind. Are y'all familiar with the Hawkeye Initiative? Yes. I was yeah. going to mention it earlier, and it kind of got away from me. <laughs> well, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, no, no, no. You, you. I was, I was just going to say, like, so um, I learned about it first, again, through some research that a scholar put out, uh, and then, of course, through the actual thing itself. But, yeah, so that idea of taking male characters and putting them in the in the poses of women. that And so, like, Catwoman alone, her poses should reasonably break, break anyone's spine. Like, it's not right. at all rooted yeah. in reality. Um, and then, of course, seeing, like, the people's reaction to it online, because I think it was posted on Tumblr originally yes. right so he was like oh like because some folks are all for it and then others like no this is not okay it's like well hold on a minute why ain't it why can't yeah why can't uh clint barton pose in a g-string uh and do a split at the same time <laughs> like what's wrong right? yes mm-hmm. right right yeah. right yeah, yeah. everybody has butts. yeah you know yeah. uh yeah uh 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 and that was like for different artists right did a different artist or did one artist do that with like male characters doing female poses I think it was one of those things that then got accepted by the internet at large. So I'm sure now yeah. you can, you can yeah. find. Yeah. 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 It brings up somebody who took Arkham. Like it was like Arkham city or something video game, the Batman video game, but they switched the skins of Batman and Catwoman. So it was Batman walking like Catwoman, Catwoman walking like Batman and it makes you wonder, like, why is Catwoman walking a tightrope, but on just on flat ground? Like, why is this? And then you take Batman, you put him in there, and he's doing that, you know, kind of sashaying sort of motion. And yeah. it's like, ah, yes, we are, we are. 
And it's not just Catwoman. I mean, if you take any female character in Batman, Poison Ivy uh, most likely like walks that way. As long, I mean, if she's walking, Harley Quinn, like those female characters, Batgirl, not so much, but maybe it's for a different reason. I'm not quite sure, but for the most part, you know, uh, it's those gender roles that are getting enforced. Um, uh, I forget where I was going with that. You know, what's interesting about that is when you think about how these characters in their physicality uh, evoke sexuality. Um, with men are sort of, at least I'm just sort of spitballing here, but like the way that, again, Superman walks or Batman walks or anybody, um, except for the flash because he don't walk, but you know what I'm saying? Uh, (laughs) there's this sort of like, um, almost like a passive, uh, hypersexuality, right? It's just Mm -hmm. by, by existing, they are being, and therefore that we are meant to interpret them in a hypersexual way with women. It's that plus what appears to be intentionality. Right. The characters are are depicted in a way they behave in a way that seems like not only are they just statically hypersexual, their movements and behavior suggest that they are aware of their own hypersexuality and then accentuate that through certain gestures and that kind of thing, which sort of plays into this idea of um, I heard uh, I read a a great article about how comic book art for women um, is meant to sort of be like pinup art and that pinup art is supposed to be the. in pinup art, there's not uh, there's rarely nudity, but there is always the implication of possibility of sex, right? And what's interesting about that is you can apply that to to the men as well, but it doesn't have the same effect because their movements, their gestures, their expressions aren't necessarily meant to add on to that that foundational hypersexuality in the way that women are represented. If that makes any sense, mm. yeah. yeah. Uh- it's funny that you bring up pinup stuff. Uh, Alexis, have you have you seen the Marvel swimsuit uh, issues or whatever that they used to have? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. It was it was primarily women until I think the final year they did it. I think it's why they stopped. Where they did an all men swimsuit one with like Punisher in a skull speedo, and it was ju- it was like, and it may have made viewers think things they didn't want to think about, even though like. Uh, is it awakening anything in you? Um, do you, do you have any thoughts about those Marvel? Well, I would say dishes? just kind of going back to what Gabe said too. I, I think especially up until recent years in comics, right? We we portray women's movement in this way that implies intentionality for men, right? Mm-hmm. That like it, it's not that I'm moving intentionally to elicit a sexual response from everyone. It's it's specifically men, but but to to go to the um, you were saying about the swimsuit issues. I, I think yeah. one of the most interesting things I've seen in the last year is actually this depiction of characters like Captain America and Bucky as pinup art. That has become really popular. Um, yeah. And the idea that, you know, um, they're completing these activities that are, are typically assumed of women, right? Like, you know, Steve is cleaning the house or, or Bucky is, you know, in the kitchen. And I just think that's similarly to the, the Hawkeye initiative was kind of a pushback on things like the original Marvel swimsuit issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to, because we're bringing up sexuality, I want to bring up um, an idea, because we're talking about masculinity in comics, masculinity as it relates to relationships in comics and how these characters uh, uh, deal with relationships. Like, I think that back in the day, uh, uh, decades and decades ago at least, I mean, things... It was it was a, a lot of comic book covers 
Superman, for instance, uh, it would be like, Superman's got to get married to this, like, rock lady. Oh, no, I'm not ready to get tied down. Sweat drop, sweat drop. Like, whatever. Not marriage. Oh, no. I'm a, what? I'm I'm a swinging bachelor. But I My also don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like... That 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 age old tale of like getting quote unquote tied down, right? Like that 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 idiom, or like the old ball and chain type. Even situation. the man of steel can't lift the ball and chain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, uh, Alexis, do you have any thoughts about like relationships in comics and how masculinity is portrayed through their treatment? Relationship, um, yeah. I would say my interest has more been in how that has evolved, right? Yeah. That, like, we started in a place where, you know, like you said, like, oh, no, marriage. Like, what am I going to do, you know? Like, <laughs> oh, and that's, no. yeah. that's not what I want, right? And then it, it seemed to to progress to this almost like um, these almost like toxic relationships, right? Like, he loves her so much, he'll kill people for her. He loves her so much, he'll destroy a timeline. Right. To get right. back to her. Right. Which is also right. not a not a positive um, no. depiction of because it's the woman's fault there. Right. Yes. And I, I think the other thing that's interesting, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, is is that a lot of times the male characters with their significant other, um, like Green Arrow and Black Canary come to mind. Right. Are, are put in the position to save them from some sort of male violence. Right. And so not only are they responsible for having rescued them. Right. The male character is put in this position of having to be responsible to always make sure that their paramour is safe, right? But then you put the, the female character in this in this position where their only growth as a character has to do with the fact that violence was committed upon them by men, right? Which is also problematic, so. Uh, you, you, you like Green Arrow and Black Canary, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, you read, did you read the issue, the, the, the issue or whatever that's special when they get married? Yes. They were like gearing up towards the marriage. What were your thoughts? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't really remember how I feel, I, how I felt at the time. I think yeah. it was generally like, eh, right? Eh. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, and this is something that I say on like all my shows. I love shipping. Like I, like, like we could talk about how like relationship or romance comics are like meant for girls or whatever but i've always had this uh, affinity towards like the relationships in the comics and i'm always like i want these two to get together i i I want that like uh maybe that comes from like i i my dad grew up with archie comics so he has a lot of old archie comics so i used to read those as a kid maybe i'm reading this whole like betty veronica archie love triangle thing being like i don't know anyway point being is i'm a real big fan of green arrow and black canary but i know that like and relationships in general in comics. Uh, but I know that, like, depending on the writer, each writer has their own weird take on, like, what a relationship means and how that portrays, like, how each character is portraying that. Because, like, maybe it was Kevin Smith that was writing that, like, Green Arrow and Black Canary were in a relationship but not committed, or maybe they were, and then Green Arrow, like, cheats on her at least once. And that, like, well, boys will be boys. He has to, like, learn not to cheat before he gets married, and she will accept him. And it's this weird thing for two characters that I, like, really like. Anyway, 
I just, well, just think I about would the say that, that that happens kind of, you know, it goes back to a perception issue, right? That like when you when you say, you know, Betty and Veronica and Archie, that's still very much a love triangle that was written for you. That wasn't written for me, right? Yeah. Um, that that's Archie trying to choose between two women because of course all of these women are gonna gonna fall at the feet right. of a man. And I, I think right. one of one of the the kind of parallels to me in the Marvel comics that's really interesting about that is, is looking at how Matt Fraction portrayed Hawkeye's exes versus how Natasha's exes have always been portrayed, mm-hmm. right? Which is where Natasha is put in, in this position that like she must not be sexually moral because she's had all of these exes, right? And Hawkeye is much more put in this position where like, well, it's fine because all of his exes are best friends and they play poker together. So what was the problem, right? Um, right. And he is kind of lauded for his romantic history in a way that she isn't, which I think to go back to your, you know, the topic of the conversation, I think still puts men in kind of this precarious position. I really need I, to, I, yeah. Um, oh, sorry, I, was gonna, I was gonna say, I really need to read this Matt Fraction run because I keep it's hearing about fantastic. it. <laughs> my only, my, my, the most exposure I've had to Hawkeye outside of the MCU has been his character in Old Man Logan, which I read the entire series of. And like that version is very much not a good dude. No. Um, it's impressive that he drives uh, a you know ATV blind. That's that's yeah. very impressive. But also yeah. a subplot is you know him trying to avoid his ex wives and then being caught for being a deadbeat dad. So yeah, <laughs> I, I really need to see this much better version of all that. Yeah. yeah. Keep in mind though, and that's an interesting thing. And I mean, it's not just this writer, but it is other writers. Mark Miller is an interesting writer and i i use interesting i like mark miller a lot but i understand like there are certain aspects with female characters and race he does not do well at all with and mark miller wrote old man logan at least that first run and then other writers jumped on to kind of kind of take it on uh he classically falls into those like oh yeah this is uh this is the like these tropes of like i don't know i don't know how to put it but Mark yeah. Miller is Mark Miller, and it's yeah. Well, it's, speaking uh, of Millers, I've been reading the um, the Frank Miller run of Daredevil recently, uh, mm. and so and the and the way he treats uh, uh, Black Widow is frustrating. It's what, just what happens. Well, so in the so I'm reading one of the collected volumes, and um, I forget which one it is off the top of my head, but like it's one where there's the on again off again between uh, uh, Daredevil and and Natasha, and then there's another woman that he's you know he falls back in love with who rejected him that kind of stuff. But the way that like Natasha, the way he writes her out of this uh, uh, in this arc is that like she's too emotionally like unstable, like she sees. Daredevil rescues his ex. They're not dating at this point, but he rescues her. And then Natasha sees this and she's like, clearly uh, uh, there's no room for me in his life. It's like, well, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> hold, hold on a second. Are you telling me this character who is, who's got a mythos already about being a super competent spy can't um, talk things through or, or have an emotionally healthy reaction to, to any of like, what? <laughs> So, well, right. and in in those same books, right? We also get a Natasha that's like, "Oh, look, he has fallen into my web," right? So it's yeah, very yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> sometimes it was genuine, him. but it must not have been genuine all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's very it's weird, and it's fr- <laughs> his representation of Daredevil, Daredevil was really interesting and compelling. But the way he writes women characters is just is not it ain't it. Um, but yeah. I, I, I want to take that and I want to uh, take I want to take Frank Miller 
Because Frank Miller is, he wrote, he essentially rebooted Batman in 88, 87 with Dark Knight Returns Mm -hmm. um, and turned Batman into this lone, brooding, uh, dark, solo character. And that roughly, uh, I mean, that's a future tale, but Crisis on Infinite Earths happens and they reboot Batman and Frank Miller jumps back on for Batman Year One. Again, dark, violent, uh, brooding, solo uh, uh, character. He's not even a womanizer. Uh, He has no time for women uh, 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 as Batman. Yeah, Yeah. only the mission. Very only the mission. Right. The question then becomes, does Batman even have sex? Is that like, because back in the in the 80s and 70s, Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill's Batman, like, he was a uh, globetrotting. He was with Talia Al Ghul. Uh, you know, uh, we Batman see these relationships. Life. Right. And I like I like that interpretation that Batman can fall in love, that Batman had a relationship, because that also um, gets rebooted later to Talia taking Batman's genes after uh, 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 essentially assaulting him, right? Drugging and 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 creating Damien in a test tube, and it becomes this weird retcon where it's like the original story, I believe in in Son of the Demon, I think, is that they fall in love and they 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 have a night together or multiple nights together. I'm not quite sure, and she gets pregnant through that, and so there's this weird shift of Batman. And this is going into the 90s where ni- the 90s characters are like hyper masculine and hyper masculine characters have no time for love. Love is not masculine. It's this weird thing. Um, uh, you guys have any thoughts about Batman's hyper masculinity? Yeah, I think uh, so. I think part of this is how human do they want Batman to be? Because that's part of the constraint, right? That's part of the conceit is that he is not human, but he keeps pace with gods. Well, how can you do that if he's busy with the women's work of love or some foolishness like that, right? Um, so I think that's a part of it is like, we see this also in the the different versions of the character when he's adapted to the screen, whether or not he has a love interest, things like that. Or in, um, they made reference to him in Batwoman. Uh, as with like a throwaway line about you know Bruce and his you know his cocaine and his women in South America. It's like what wh- what is this Bruce getting up to? This Bruce, <laughs> right. Um, right? Right. So, but then you have that sort of grim dark version um, where he doesn't have emotional attachments. It, he barely has, it seems, emotional attachments with his Robins uh, or with Alfred beyond like a sort of Jimmy Cricket figure on his shoulder that tells him, uh, Mister Wayne, you can't do that. Um, yeah. And so I, I wonder, like, how much of that has to do with an aspirational uh, version of masculinity that is um, both uh, exceedingly brooding and dark and tormented, but also beyond almost every other aspect of humanity um, versus one that's like, you know, more well-rounded and almost emotionally healthy and, you know, has relationships and things like that, which men, of course, in, in that very stereotypical way are like, well, that's weakness or whatever, you know. The neckbeard version of Batman, if you will. Right. There is definitely a neckbeard version of Batman, which I'll admit is not my uh, cup of tea. Uh, The Batman that I like uh, has different values, the values of family and making sure that people are better off than he was and Mm -hmm. protecting them. And the Bat family is my most 
and this is a hot take. I don't think Batman's as interesting as when he is with his the Bat family. Like solo Batman, eh, I can take him or leave him. Uh, but Bat family, uh, especially because the Bat family is getting more and more diverse over time, whether it's uh, uh, sexual orientation, whether it's gender, whether it's uh, uh, race, uh, it's getting more diverse over time. And that is kind of what I'm there for. Uh, Alexis, did you have any thoughts about Batman? Yeah, I mean, I just think going back to to kind of how you started that that statement, you know, you you were talking about the the story with Talia, right? And I think in so many kind of modern interpretations of that story, that has that has been on the same plane as Batman not having attachments, right? The reason we see his relationship with Talia is is supposed to be this like warning bell, right? When he chose love, he chose it with the wrong person, right? Like right. he chose it with this this evil seductress who, you know, like so so when he formed attachments, they were bad. Warning, warning men if you form attachments they're going to you know uh demasculate you is really you know what the the commentary of that story is in so many ways right also a woman's only purpose is to trick you into starting a family Mm -hmm. right nights we had a fire i felt very rich indeed yes uh uh dark knight rises Mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah talk about i always forget that talia is in that "Quote unquote," yeah. Talia is in <laughs> that. At- <sighs> I <laughs> we talked about this before. I think on the last episode that I was on about my mm-hmm. frustration with that movie because uh, one, that was a weird version of Talia, and two, it was weird that Bang was a henchman. But yes, <sighs> anyway, yeah, well, it looks like Dimitri's. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, on that note, uh, and, and thank you for bringing up that point, um, Alexis, about uh, about Talia and her relationship with Bruce and how when he does choose love, he screws it up, which is interesting for like the world's greatest detective, right? Um, right, very. <laughs> but it sort of doubles down on this idea, and it's a recurring trope throughout a lot of media, that women, and in particular women of color, are tied to the mystic. Uh, and in the way that like Talia Abu is with uh, the Reser- with the Lazarus pools and things like that. But they're tied to the mystic. They're tied to... Um, the ethereal and darkness and all these sort of tropes and cliches that are dehumanizing in a very supernatural kind of way, but also stand diametrically opposed to all the things that men are supposed to be, which is logical, reasoning, emotionally removed, all that kind of stuff. And if it weren't for women, they could be, is kind of the, uh, the yes, underlying yes. test, right? Yeah. Well, and I think even looking at, um, like there was a conversation I think I had with Neil um, a couple months ago about the, the difference when you look at somebody like Mystique versus Loki, right? And whereas, whereas Loki, you know, in the in the comics very much, he chooses these different identities because he's mischievous, right? But Mystique chooses them because she's duplicitous, right? And like that, that is a very, that's a very fine line, but where the male characters end up on that side of the line is, you know, they get to choose this because they get to mess with people and that's okay right mm-hmm. whereas she must choose it because she you know wants to seduce people and wreak havoc i just had a a, a mini heart attack there for a second alexis when you brought up mystique because i just remembered that in three days i have to submit a proposal for a freshman level class about marvel and uh, public speaking <laughs> that i really really should be doing anyway <laughs> let's continue the conversation <laughs> Um, it's interesting that that mystique is is considered duplicitous because it's also it, it, shapeshifters are interesting, right? 
And when we look at female shapeshifters versus male shapeshifters, like female shapeshifters are going from male to female a lot, right? Like they, they, I mean, 50%, 50%, right? Like that would be natural. That would be like, you're, you're shapeshifting, you're, you're choosing one or the other or whatever, or, 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 you know, non-binary or whatever. But my point being is that like, like you see that now when you see a male shapeshifter, what are the feelings that viewers get when a male shapeshifter turns into a woman? I feel like that's a whole different, like, like mm-hmm. feeling that that's supposed to elicit and they don't do it that often because of that yeah i wonder about that because you know with mystique you know her her default form is a, is a blue woman um but we don't know mystique's birth identity right we don't know anything about her or whether, whether she was assigned male or female at birth or or anything like that um oh there's a kitty cat uh sorry <laughs> no that's cool uh and so for all we know mystique could have been born uh, you know, biologically a man and then went through the transformation. But but to your point, um, I think that in the way that we sort of masculinize women in a lot of the comic book art, uh, right, they become uh, variations of these sort of strong woman types. Um, we don't have many, I, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of a, of a popular superhero who is a man who is drawn in an effeminate way that is also a hero. Right. So I think there I think there sort of underlies that subtext of um, maybe maybe Gambit a little bit because he's he's a bit of a pretty boy himself. I mean, I love Gambit, but there is sort of that um, prettiness about him. Uh, at least yeah. he conceptualizes himself that way. But neither here nor there. Um, uh, perhaps magic users. Maybe. Yeah. Male magic users aren't portrayed in the same way that other masculine strength-based heroes are. Dr. Strange, for instance, mm-hmm. he doesn't, he doesn't like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know what a pose would be to cast a spell, but also be masculine. Maybe because we consider casting spells feminine, that they're, if they're non-physical forms of violence sure. or attacks. Or we associate it with the intellectual, right? We okay. associate it like, so like if, for example, if you were to have an example of a, um, masculine occupation that is not physically inclined, it would be like an academic or a professor or something like that. Um, and it's in large part because you can't get much in as you're sitting behind a desk. Um, right. I have learned this the hard way. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a part of it, right? So then if you aren't um, physically capable, then you must be exceedingly intelligent. It's like like Reed Richards is not, uh, I would suggest not like a super masculine character in that way, right? He's not, he doesn't assume the form of like rippling bulges or anything like that. Um, right. He's a sociopath with terrible relationships with a lot of his fa- friends and family. Uh, yeah. But, but, or even um, Hank Pym, his, his masculine components are the result of biological experimentation. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so uh, also, sorry about Hank Pym. I think that he also, there, there's a couple plot lines in which he's always, he's insecure and he's trying to keep up with everybody. I think that he classically, and this is my belief, he's an intellectual character that wants to compete with other strength-based heroes and thus has a buff body as like yellow jacket. And like he, like, you know what I mean? Like he makes himself be more masculine or look more masculine in order to keep up with what he thinks that being a superhero is. And that reminds me of actually a a character of a a story from, I think it was a 1960s, 1970s comic book with Captain America, where there was a scientist at S.H.I.E.L.D. 
who was um he wanted to be captain america he was he was ugly and of course in that way that they were reinforcing that stereotype of if you're ugly you must be a evil you must be villain or something along those lines right. um and so he was trying to impress uh, one of the secretaries at shield and so he tried to recreate the super soldier serum and it turned him into a giant gorilla mm-hmm. and so and he obviously blamed Captain America. He's like, I wouldn't be doing this if I had been born pretty like you or if I've been masculine like you. And so, you know, you're the cause of all this. It's like, no, no, bro, you you couldn't accept who you were uh, and like go to the gym once in a while or something like that and, you know, try to take care of yourself, shower more than once every three weeks. And as a result, he became an actual gorilla uh, and I think was eventually captured by the mole men, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, 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 the mm. whole thing. Um but yeah, yeah. If you are if you are slight of frame, if you are not uh, a Hulk of some sort, then you're you know a nerd, for lack of a better. Right. Term. And then also, why don't you try harder? You could be you could be like me, but yeah. you don't try hard enough. Uh, go to the gym. Why don't you? Why don't you like? It's like self help, but in a weird. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's that's weird. it's so weird. Um, uh, uh, Alexis, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> Why are you laughing? Um, uh, I'm laughing also at the at the cat in the background. He, uh, Tommy, wait, is it, what, Tommy? This is Tommy after Tommy Merlin. Yeah. And uh, he apparently very much wanted to be a part of this conversation. I don't yeah. know what's happening. Now. Acting like Batman in the background, stooping on a gargoyle, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, sorry, what were, your, uh, what were you saying? <laughs> Honestly, I don't remember what your question was. Um. This is actually interesting. Uh, well, I, I guess I don't have a question, or okay. I did. I don't. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, Blue Beetle has body body dysmorphia, um, and that's something that Mister Plow is saying uh, in our comments. Um, uh, Mister Plow uh, is Paul Lau of of the Key, bringing up Blue Beetle's body dysmorphia. Blue Beetle starts off as this, you know, uh, character that is fit and doing. Uh, you know, acrobatics and that sort of thing. And he's super smart. And then later uh, he gains a lot of weight and he can't fit into his suit and he's on the justice league international, but he has this thing where he's trying to keep up with um, other heroes. And then he's constantly being paired with booster gold and booster gold is always physically fit. Uh, classic blonde haired, blue eyes, uh, uh, con artist type character, uh, not intelligent. And blue beetle has to kind of keep up with that. Um, I think that's that's interesting. I'm not sure if there's a question involved with that, but do either of you guys have any thoughts about blue uh, uh, body dysmorphia in comics? So that's a huge. That's I mean that's a huge subject. Yeah, I wonder about this with like the shapeshifters. Going back to what we were talking about mm-hmm. before, and the trying to find a default form or form that fits you best, right? Um. And I wonder how much it would it would be different if because the ones that come to mind for me are uh, okay. So you have Mystique, obviously. You have um, who's the guy who was in the Flash TV show? Uh, well, it, in the uh, elongated man, elongated is man, that character, yeah, right. And he's not a shapeshifter proper, but he does manipulate his body in the same way like uh, Mr. Yeah. Fantastic does. I wonder yeah. how it would change or be different for these characters if they for characters like. Mr. Fantastic or Elongated Man, if they weren't already archetypally like acceptable in terms of aesthetic and appearance and things like that, like 
what does this look like for someone who perhaps has a disability? What does this look like for someone who in their default form is a person of color or a non-binary individual? Does this become a complicating factor? Because then there's the whole question of well, what is your true state? And as much as there is a true state, right? Uh, as though any of us have a true state, like we haven't been changing our entire lives. Right. Um, right. So yeah, I, I wonder about that as well. What um, what kind of the implications are for for these shapeshifters? But yeah, yeah. Right. Are are either of you familiar with Young Justice, the cartoon? Yes. A little bit. Uh, Alexis, uh, you know Miss Martian on Hello, Young Justice. Megan. Yeah. Uh, she is a white Martian pretending to be a green Martian who then shapeshifts from her green Martian form to whatever she needs to be until she's comfortable with um, showing that she is a white Martian. Um, and does that play a, a part with, with female shapeshifters in general or like what's that base form? Well, I think with Young Justice, right, the the penultimate episode where we we as an audience learn about the fact that she's also, you know, or explicitly learn rather that she's hiding this form as a white Martian, blah, 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 blah. That whole story is told within the guise of her relationship. Right. It, it's not a story that's brought to us because she is she is personally dealing with like wanting to be a different person. It's, it, you know, is he going to accept her in this relationship because of who she is? Right. But I, I think it all kind of stems around the idea, kind of going back to what Abe was saying, you know, with, shape shifting is kind of centers around this idea that there's a good shape right? Especially in comics, right? That you're, you're striving for whatever that good shape is. And I think even when you think about characters like Steve, who is of course not a shapeshifter, right? He, he could not have, even though, you know, he could be a good, tiny, you know, gangly disabled person that wasn't good enough for him to be a superhero, right? There had to be something else that he was given so that he could transform into this form of what we consider to be good. In the same way that, like, a white Martian is bad and a green Martian is, you know, good. Yeah, we had that pop up again in the "What If" uh, episode as well, right? Mm -hmm. Because he wasn't good; he wasn't cleared for combat in his um, sort of gangly, you know, four F form. He had to have the enhancements from the Hydra Stomper suit and all that kind of stuff. So, mm -hmm. it, and he is a much more effeminate, visually effeminate character in that ser in that episode, right? Because he just. It's, it's very clear from the visual dynamics between him and Carter that uh, she is sort of in the more masculine role and he is in the more effeminate role. And that is somehow not OK, that that has yeah. to be modified. And like, especially in that particular episode, that there was no other way for him to be good or helpful. Right. That like the idea was that as a male character, the only way he could be good and helpful was to find some way to fight rather than to, you know, run intelligence or help right. in some other way, you know, help in the way that Peggy did in the first Avenger that that apparently wasn't good enough for for Steve Rogers. Let's uh, let's keep talking a little bit more about Captain Carter and uh, uh, I'll be right back. Sure. Okay. Uh, so, I, you know, Alexis, to your point, what's really frustrating about that is that, you know, one of the things that makes Steve so great a hero isn't his physical ability, it's that he's a good leader, right? So why wasn't it okay for him to be behind a desk, mm -hmm. working intelligence, maybe acting as a spotter or something like that? I mean, or, yeah, like that was really frustrating. Yes, yes. Yeah. Just kind of invalidated that whole aspect of him. And, and at the same time, detracted from the spotlight of, you know, uh, of Peggy Carter just, you know, cracking Nazi skulls for yes. a good amount of time. Really kind of undermined her story in a lot of ways, I think. 
It was, and and you know, so I showed that class, I showed that episode actually in my pop media class. We were talking about rhetorical messages, and um, I used that one. We were talking about gender dynamics, and I, upon the second time of seeing it, realized uh, she saves him, but only because he is there to save her. Right. Exactly. Yeah, and the fight with the Hydra thingy at the mm-hmm. end. Yep. Yeah. What the hell, Marvel? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, know. Uh, I do a, a show on Fridays where we unpack whatever the what if episode was. And um, when we were doing Captain Carter, we came up with the, the segment that we call WTF, which stands for what the feminism, because mm. that episode was kind of this good example of Marvel, you know, not really understanding how, mm. how the representation they were supposed to portray actually worked. Yeah. Well, and, and I feel like at the same time, you didn't get to see much of her spycraft right. uh, in that episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, and, and I, I wonder too about her, the, the physical form that, that they used um, and that sort of, she looked, I guess, evoked, I guess, images of Wonder Woman a little mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. and that, you know, much taller, broader shoulder and all that kind of stuff. Um, what would it look like if her, if physical capability hadn't, um, her physical ability had not been mirrored in a more masculine, uh, archetypally masculine image. And on the one hand, I think that that does something for sort of normalizing, uh, you know, non-stereotypically, you know, feminine forms because, you know, the, everybody, every gender comes in a variety of different bodies. Right. Um, on the other hand, like, you know, uh, soldiers, uh, you know, women that serve in the military don't look like that mm-hmm. as well. So, right, you you teach martial arts, you know that strength doesn't have to look that way. <laughs> well, and I think the the other kind of frustrating thing in that episode was like, you know, she kind of makes a joke about like she would never be involved in the USO show in the same way that Steve was, right? Mm-hmm. And it it's almost plays as, well, she is strong now, so surely she couldn't want to do that, right? So like those, those women must be weaker because they are more feminine. That's in that point. they're you know they're dancing and they're involved in, in the USO show, which was an interesting like twist to put in that episode. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And of course, you know, her being in that capacity, her expressing that post transformation. Mm-hmm. So the closer she comes to masculine power, the right. less worthy other women are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's really interesting. It has this weird through line too, where like she's, you know, Bucky does not go through torture because she's able to get there first, right? Mm-hmm. And then the changing incident is that Steve wasn't because he was involved in the USO show, right? So because Steve was involved in something that's stereotypically more feminine, he was not able to save the day because Peggy made the choice not to. She was, which is an interesting dichotomy there as well. Yeah, that's really Are you did you bring up the fact that Peggy is not asked to be part of the USO tour? Yes. <laughs> I, I I think I, I've heard your take on it before, but basically, like, my thought on that was that the U.S. Army would not want a female super soldier to be public knowledge, that that's not the image that they want. So they're not going to put her on a USO tour. They put Steve on a USO tour, and he was a super because soldier. Because he's a man. But he's right. a man. Yes, but it doesn't have to, it doesn't really have to do, I think, with the fact that America doesn't want her to be seen. I think the, the, the line plays two ways, right? Mm. One hand, she's saying that they didn't want her, and then she goes on to kind of explain that she wouldn't have wanted it, right? And right. and the thing there is that like it, it plays more to me that they would not have wanted to include her because she was not typically feminine. And she would not have wanted to be a part of it because typical femininity or stereotypical femininity was beneath her. Mm. I think that's to add to that point. Um, when both 
Captain Carter and and Captain America when they become who they are, uh, their physical form is not outside of the possibility of the human physique, right? So, so when when Cap goes on as the USO, it's like, oh well, here's a really buff guy. I, I don't know that they were advertising that this is the height of scientific advancement and and you know murdering um, for lack of a better term. Uh, so they they might have done the same thing with with Carter, but again, as as Alexis pointed out, she doesn't look typically feminine, right? She looks like she could bench press a Humvee, uh, yeah. and so that doesn't fit the aesthetic. Which she pretty much woman. does. Yeah, I think at one point she does. Uh, I mean, she does right. that thing in it. Yeah. So. Um, she uh, so she doesn't fit that archetypal version of femininity at the time as well, mm. and then, like you say, you know, she doubles down on it. But yeah, hmm. um, I want to bring up toxic masculinity and specific characters that might be more uh, of toxic masculine characters. Um, Alexis, does do any characters come to mind when we think of toxically masculine? characters and it's it's hard to say because i obviously like writers will write certain characters with certain nuances that other writers won't pick up on and you know not they won't continue that ball um but characters that are toxically masculine um the ones that come to mind are 90s edgelord type characters uh uh characters with big guns and bigger pouches right uh, but are there are there any uh, big characters that stand out to you as like just examples of like? Uh, I guess I think about it less in terms of specific characters that are to- toxically masculine, and I think uh-huh. more about the moments where any character exhibits toxic masculinity, and in so okay. many cases. I, I think a lot of the times we see that in comics now, you know, that we can analyze that its role in comics has to do with their relationships with women. Okay. Is there, is there a big moment that, that sticks out that we haven't talked about? Uh, I, I mean, I mean I I'll let you, I'll let you think about list, it. I mean, there's right? a bunch. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe one that grinds your gears specifically. Cause what I hate is when I love a character and then they do some batshit crazy off-character thing that I'm like, why? Why did that Why did that need to be in there? Why did that happen? Whose choice was this? Because in the end, we can say that it's a character's choice to do certain things. But come on, like char- characters are written by people. And people have ideas. And uh, it's really the writer that's pushing forward that character. Um, you know, uh Gabe, does do any big moments stand uh, out to you? One big moment that's predicated on another big moment. So uh-huh. there's there's the emphasis or the the infamous um, moment when uh, when Hank Pym you know strikes Janet as the yeah. wasp, that kind of thing. And I've heard that explained away as like, well, that was a miscommunication between the writer and the uh, and the illustrator and, and that kind of thing. And and that may well be the case, but the the product we got was the product we got, right? Uh, so he's yeah. having a, a bit of a psychotic break, and he and he you know uh, assaults Janet. Um, yeah. Then fast forward into the Secret Empire run with okay. um, was that Nick Spencer who wrote that? I want to say, really? uh, yeah. So when he, they are assembling the different cubes, uh, the different pieces of the cosmic cube 
right? Uh, to sort of like help undo everything and all that kind of stuff. And they go to where Hank Pym slash Ultron, because they've fused together at this point, uh, where they're hiding one of the pieces or whatever, which is just a bizarre series of events. Um, but, you know, Hank Pym slash Ultron, so I think we'll call him Pym for the sake of uh, simplicity. Um, Ultron? Pimtron? No. Um, where he's having them sit down and he's pretending to like cook a dinner or whatever. And Tony, yeah. the, 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 and, and Tony Stark or his AI says, um, you know why, Hank, we just stopped having you around? It's, and he says, it's because of what you did to Janet. We've never gotten over that. And two things struck, struck me about that. One, it, it takes some courage to, you know, talk that kind of trash to Ultron while you're in his domain. But two, Tony, your track record ain't clean with women. Did they mean less because you weren't married to them? <laughs> like, like, right. oh boy, is uh, has just a t- like the and I realize it's it was the um, I realize it was the ultimate line, but like you know when he uh, he does that thing with Black Widow, right? Oh, uh, the the sex tape where he records the sex tape without her knowledge and that kind of mm. stuff. Um, but also just you know, the, the, the notorious, you know, um, random, uh, encounters and, and not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but that he's very callously disregarding the, the feelings of these women and stuff like that. It's like, right. Emotional violence is still violence. And, and so like what, what you, you don't have a whole lot of ground to stand here on Tony is what I'm saying. Right. Like, uh, the ultimates takes the ball and runs with it with the, so 616 Marvel is what the, the Marvel universe proper. And so like Hank slaps, slaps uh, uh janet yeah and then the ultimates does their version of it which is uh I above not... and above and beyond they do that but then uh-huh. they there's a lot to it i don't want to describe okay. everything but yeah. it is a yeah. prolonged terrorizing form of violence I from see. hank to janet uh that is is it meant to make the 616 look tame and us to forget the 616 version of it by making this one so psychotic? I don't know. But Mark Miller, I believe on multiple occasions, essentially says that the Ultimates is satire. And the Ultimates is like a modernized form of the Marvel Universe, uh, specifically the Avengers, where it's satirical and a parody almost. Like, um, they take masculinization and hypermasculization to the utmost oh, yeah. when it comes to those characters. Yeah. Characters that should be beloved like Steve Rogers in, in the 616 where uh, uh, he has compassion and he sees beyond his own time that he was born in. In the Ultimates, he's jingoistic. He's 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 uh, he runs for uh, president at some point. Borderline yes. racist. Yeah. Oh, uh, which one? Uh, uh, Ultimates, uh, Steve. Oh, yeah, he I think later. For a little while, yeah. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Um, but in the beginning run of Mark Miller's Ultimates, like, it's classic, like, Batman, or not Batman, Captain America being like, does this, you think this A stands for France? Like, he's like, why should I surrender? You think this A stands for France? And yeah. so, like, there's this constant thing of, like, like, old-fashioned values and whatever. I could get into it, but the Ultimates kind of takes that ball and then declares they're playing another sport, you know? Mm. One could say they're taking the ball from soccer and they're playing American football, I guess. If you want to use that metaphor in a way. Um, 
but yes, Hank Pym. Sorry, did I derail the Hank Pym conversation? No, I was just going to say that. So, so like, there's that, but there's also, um, so what goes hand in hand? Okay, so if we understand that toxic masculinity is the idea of trying to dominate and control, right? That is sort of the cornerstone of it. That it manifests yeah. in a variety of uh, different ways. We saw that with the "What If" episode recently, right? With uh, Doctor Strange, where he oh. he tries to like rewrite uh, time, and not to say he didn't have a noble cause behind it, but he. You know, he is warned time and time again by Wong, by um, by the ancient one, don't do this. There's going to be problems. And he's like, don't care. I am who I am. Uh, you know, Dr. Strange is going Dr. Strange and I don't care. So he always means, does that. It, That's he, like off. He always yeah. does that. Yeah. Yeah. No. And so that leads to the annihilation of the universe or his universe for that matter. So, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, one can tie that into the Greek idea of hubris and you know, the tragedy of that. Um, uh, Alexis, did you have any thoughts about? Uh, well, I, I, w- I was going to say, that? going back to um, secret, like secret empire is just, I, I feel like we could spend all day really analyzing what secret empire did with masculinity. But like one of the interesting things there is that uh, you like Hydra Cap kills Natasha, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which then leads to other char- male characters feeling that they have to, you know, find and rescue Natasha. Um, but I, I think the other interesting there, thing there, right, is that in so many ways that starts because of Kobik. And in, in Thunderbolts, it's really portrayed that, like, Kobik, you know, does what she does and, like, that Bucky doesn't see it because he is attached to Kobik, right? Which is this other example of, like, you know, well, men can't have attachments because then negative things happen, right? Right. What's interesting is, and in, in on that note of uh, when Hydra Cap kills um, kills uh, Natasha, and it was I had I had such mixed feelings about that because it's drawn so well, mm-hmm. but it's so, <laughs> and uh, and all after she just whooped up on the Punisher, like she just lays Frank Castle out. Uh, which that's another good point about how toxic masculine characters or characters that exhibit toxic masculinity. Um, uh, will ally themselves with dominant power structures, even when they know intellectually they're wrong. The Punisher sides with Nazis because they'll bring back his family, which again goes back to this idea of emotional attachments will make you weak and will make you do bad things. Not that he was mm-hmm. a saint before, but you know, <laughs> say what you want about Frank Castle, he wasn't a Nazi. Um, but uh, <laughs> but that then leads to this interesting moment with Miles Morales because, as alluded to in Civil War II, that he's going to kill uh, Captain America, right? And then in that same arc, uh, in that lead up to it, he there's this great moment where he's talking to his friends and he says, I feel like I have to hold everything back that if I just did not hold back, I could solve so many of these problems, but I'm also afraid of becoming a man like how my father used to be and how my uncle Aaron was when he died. Um, and so, because that Uncle Aaron is very different from the Spider-Verse Uncle Aaron, right? The the yeah. one in the comics was a killer and was trying to kill Miles. Um, so, and and that gets into this larger discussion that happens in Miles, Mor- in Miles Morales' storylines about the idea of blackness tied to criminality and violence and how he is trying to uh, address his own, what he's concerned about, like the criminal influence in his family and break away from all that kind of stuff. And so then flash forward to Secret Empire and he walks away, right? Um Someone, Afri- who was the, the wasp that spoke to him in that? Hope. Was it Hope? Was it Hope? Yeah. 
Because they would have been on the same same team at that point. Hope yeah. and Miles would have been yeah. champions together. I think so. And this was the version that was raised in the Red Room. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, she's like, hey, look, you don't need to. What if you don't kill Captain America? And then, you know, he's like, you know what? I'm not. I'm not that kind of man. This is not who I need to be. And so I thought that did. Uh, that was a great meaningful moment for addressing a lot of the tropes that have historically existed within comic books about the hyper-aggression, hyper-violence of men of color uh, and sort of getting away from that. I just wish they didn't have to fridge a woman to do it. Um, but, fridging yeah. is such a huge... Uh, I, I, I was Who was I even talking about fridging with recently? Just like, I feel like lately I've just been talking about fridging. Just like, why... Uh, I Doctor forget who I was talking about. The, well, the Doctor Strange What If episode, I think, was a, a lot of people started, yeah. started uh, I don't know, um, trying to understand their relationship with Fridging after that episode. Right. Yeah. And it's always to the purpose of furthering a man's plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and you don't see it on the flip side for female main characters necessarily losing their male love interest to further their plot. Maybe it happens sometimes. It's not to the extent. Uh, right, and the dif- the difference would be that when it happens, the male characters have usually already had fulfilled, story- fulfilled stories, mm. right? Like, that's that's really, I think, the piece that we sometimes forget with fridging, is that it's not only that the female character is is killed to further the male character's story, it's that she was never able to realize any sort of story on her own, right? right. When you look at Christine, literally all we know about Christine in the What If episode is, like, for some reason, she's put up with his bullshit, and she she's cute, right? Yeah. That's all that we get about her story. Yeah, right. Which yeah. is kind of Pepper Potts too. It's just ah, she's just she's a prize to be won. We're we're meant to think that she's a strong, independent character, but really it all hinges on on Tony. And in the end, they get together, and like Tony doesn't really change. In my opinion, that's my opinion about the MCU. Is Tony doesn't. I, really change. I think there's a lot of consistency of Tony across time, and a lot of that is. <laughs> Uh, a lot of that is selfishness uh, yeah. up until the very last minute. Um, yeah. But yeah. Even, well, I, I, I would like to say that even a sacrifice to save the universe is a selfish move. And it fits within his idea of he's super smart. Could he have figured out another way? I think so. But in the end, selfish, like his, his, I'm not saying he wanted to die, but that dying was a noble sacrifice that fits within his concept in his mind of what it, you know, of his selfishness. You think in his last moments, he was just like, I am so great. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I am the savior. <laughs> well, I mean, he literally said, I am Iron Man. Yeah. He literally, yeah. he literally ends it with, I am Iron Man. That's literally <laughs> saying, I am great, right? Like, you I could, am a god. You can almost it's feel the, 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 the uh, copyright C above that. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Ding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, well, you know, so, uh, th- on the note of fridging, something that comes to mind is um, because the show does it so very much uh, was the Netflix <laughs> Punisher series um, uh, because I love that show. Uh, but honestly, it is hard watching Frank Castle's wife Maria die mm-hmm. almost every episode. Right? Mm-hmm. It's the same sequence that plays out, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also leads into this idea of abject masculinity. Uh, and which is a component of toxic masculinity. Now, if you're not if you're not familiar, because uh, I'd only just learned about it relatively recently, um, mm. 
to being abject, abjectly masculine means that you are disposable, but it also means you have an increased and enhanced authority so that you are simultaneously at the top of the heap in terms of you can, you have the moral authority to murder anybody, Mm -hmm. right? At the same time, you have to treat yourself as though you are inherently disposable and worth nothing. So you are both the, you are both the oppressor and the oppressed at the same time Mm -hmm. in this weird sort of uh, occupying a space. Um, okay. another, another way of thinking about it is like in the military, right? Uh, uh, commanding officers who started off as uh, enlisted men um, then go send, once they ascend a certain rank, then go send enlisted men to go die, that kind of thing. And it's only in the case of these fictional characters, or even in reality, when it comes to like soldiers, we hold them up in high regard, but we also don't help them because we are so not treating them as though they're not disposable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same thing with Castle, who is a veteran as well. But mm-hmm. whenever a woman dies, whenever a woman is fridged uh, in particular, but we could say, you know, even if she had a good arc and, and still ends in death, um, these men then, because again, emotional attachment is a weakness, become abjectly masculine often because they no longer value their own lives. Right. So I would suggest that's the case with like Batman, going back to that earlier example. I don't think Batman values life at all. Certainly not his own life. Right. And he said several times the only reason he doesn't kill is because it's like it would be too easy for him. Right. Which like good for you for not murdering people. On the other hand, Bruce, that's not a great outlook. (laughs) Right. Um, And he clearly doesn't care about himself, which is unfortunate, at least in those grim dark versions, right? Uh, which right. is unfortunate because he's a dad and he should. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's where I like, I like the, uh, Mr. Plow in the comments did bring up like All-Star Batman berating a newly orphaned Robin for puking in the Batmobile. Uh, All-Star Batman and Robin was again, Frank Miller's like alternate universe kind of thing where in order to train Robin, he locks him into the Batcave and forces Robin to eat rats to survive. Robin has to figure out a way to survive. He eats rats to survive. He doesn't feed them. He doesn't do anything. The toxically masculine Batman is controlling, manipulative, uh, single-minded in his in his mission for vengeance and justice, uh, doesn't care about people, even the people that he works with. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he can't form close relationships. He has no compassion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a fan of solo Batman. That's technically like solo Batman in most of his incarnations and like the bat family is way more interesting to me. It's the Batman that learned to love the Batman who created a family in which he was born. Well, he had no family growing up, but he creates a family. That's my Batman. Well, and, and on that note of DC characters, like, um, you know, uh, the flash and how many times has he screwed with time because of, trying to control a situation that he probably shouldn't have. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, I like Alexis. I like how you put it, that it's not so much that the characters are inherently this, it's that they, they exhibit those characteristics because any, any good character could exhibit this stuff as well. Certainly. Right. Um, something that I, what was I, uh, going to say? Oh, um, Alexis, when we were talking about like like the the like the female representation, uh, fridging and female main characters, male main characters, and how if you flip it, does it work? And I think that that ties in with a lot of um, a representation issue. When when you have a lack of representation, every bit of representation creates a statistic, right? Whereas like 
if you have more, then maybe we can we can draw more from that. But the fact is, there there aren't that many female uh, 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 solo characters out there. Maybe it's growing now, but like there wasn't in the history of comic books. Like we didn't have that representation. We didn't have representation along race. So then, when we draw lines, like why are the black characters electric based? Like. Mm-hmm. I had that care that that question had popped up and I have my own theory about it. And the theory runs in lack of representation of black characters in the beginning of comic book history. And thus uh, we were only drawing from a small sample size and, but that's not an excuse. That's more of an example of like, yeah, that's we're seeing this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if I'm making any sense. Um, well, I will say, I think one of the, you know, we, we talk a lot, uh, you and I have talked a lot about oversaturation, right? And the, yeah. really that's the issue, right? Yes, that word. And, and underrepresentation. But I think yeah. one of the things that's interesting when you mention female characters in that regard is that a, a thing that's really happening in Marvel now is that we're getting more female characters, but we're not getting more female stories, right? So in effect, it, you know, the new Black Widow comic in, in so many ways is really just a reiteration of earlier stories that she has had in the comics. It's not a new story, right? Um, It's also a story where, you know, the only way we can tell a a Black Widow story is to deal with the idea of motherhood because what kind of woman would she be if we didn't, right? But, But largely, you know, we can't get any sort of, like, you know, M- Natasha's brain has been messed with and and what who is she and what is her relationship with S.H.I.E.L.D.? That is literally has been the last four runs of Black Widow. There hasn't been another story. So mm-hmm. I will say with yeah. refrigeration kind of specifically, one of the really interesting Black Widow stories is um, the Marjorie Lou story where she is actually locked in the refrigerator um, and, and gets herself out of it, right? Uh, fights her way out of the refrigerator. And one of the interesting commentaries I read on that book says, you know, that she walks herself out of the refrigerator basically and walks into Bucky as Captain America and Logan and, and another male character. And that the reason that they were included in the last panel is because that meant they could be billed on the book. Um, and they were the characters that were believed to be selling more comics at the time. So even though she's put in the refrigerator and has to fight her way out of it, she fights her way out of it to say, goodbye to men in the last panel so that the book would sell. Uh, I think you draw an interesting distinction, Alexis. Female stories versus female characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I may have not thought about that until now, uh, uh, which is great for my own personal growth. Come on, I think in that in that a great illustration of that is how prominent Black Widow has been in the MCU without actually having a story of her own, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she's been sidecar to Iron Man, to uh, Captain America, to the Hulk, mm-hmm. right? Uh, she's always existed in reference to these uh, men and to other figures, or Clint Barton for that matter, mm-hmm. but not uh, being able to have the opportunity to stand on her own until fifteen years in, uh, mm-hmm. twenty almost twenty years in, something like that, right? Which I'll admit, I still haven't seen Black Widow yet, because I, only because I'm waiting for it to come to general access on Disney+. Plus. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's an absolute distinction, yeah. Yeah, uh, the question then is, and, and may, maybe this is aligning with what I think about, like, like, race and everything. You can have Black characters, but you can't tell a Black story unless the writer is Black, telling an actual Black story. Uh, so then... Uh, telling uh, telling a, a, a female story versus a female character, sure, a, a male writer can write female characters, but they're not going to be telling a female story. 
right? I mean, Unless... I think I think to varying degrees of success. I don't want to say that no male writer can write a good female story because I, I actually really enjoy the Edmondson and Noto run on Black Widow, and that was predominantly a male-created run, right? Um, Matt, Matt Fraction's Hawkeye does some really interesting things with you know, female characters. A lot of people attribute that to Kelly Sue DeConnick's influence, but right. He like, he wrote the book regardless. Um, but, but I, I, I do, you know, and Kelly Thompson's run is actually a a female driven run that I'm very dissatisfied with. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think it, it, it depends on the gender of the writer, but I, I think it does depend on the writer's ability to, you know, decide what stories are worthy of being told um, and kind of their own implicit biases about what those stories should be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I think to that uh, to that point, like um, in, on the note of race, so like uh, uh, Saladin Ahmed, or yeah, uh, no, what's it, Ahmed Saladin? I yeah, think? who writes Miles Morales right now? Yeah, yeah, Ahmed, who writes uh, Miles Morales right now. Um, his yeah. run, on um, he's not uh, Afro-Latino. He's not Afro or Latino, as I understand it. Um, right. I think he's, he's, I want to say he's from Afghanistan. He, he's, he's Middle Eastern uh, from that part of the world, but he, he writes an excellent Miles Morales, um, because he is more attuned to those kind of things. So then to, to Alexis's point, you know, it, it, maybe it's not so much that a person needs to have a particular gender identity, but if they're willing to listen and consult with other people and not have preconceived notions about what that story is supposed to look like based off of what are, uh, you know, tropes and, and that kind of thing. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's a, it's a cut and dry situation per se. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely the history of comics have been white male writers mm-hmm. the whole way through white male writers writing for white male viewers. Right. And, and that. And that brings to mind the idea of like, so um, uh, the Dark Phoenix saga, right? Chris Claremont? Yeah, yeah. Alexis, that was a strong reaction. Sorry. <laughs> um, I suspect you have feelings. Uh, <laughs> so so that, that in, uh, you know, I haven't seen the, the Dark Phoenix, uh, the newest one, um, watching, having to watch uh, X-Men 3 for several times for my dissertation was enough. Uh, mm. And then that whole bit with like X Men Apocalypse, and that for my dissertation, and that was enough. Um, but but in the comics, right? It's a it is sort of a an interesting story of sexual assault that causes that to happen, right? It's Jason mm. Wingard as yeah um, as a uh, oh what's his mastermind name? Mind, mastermind right? And he you know emotionally you know and psychically you know invades uh, Jean Grey and messes with her, and then at one point. Um, you know, uh, kisses her under the guise of another character that she, that she, you know, doesn't know who it is. And, you know, that is a form of sexual assault and things like that. And then uh, the response to that is that she becomes this hypersexual, the dark queen, and then becomes a character who consumes a planet uh, and murders a bunch of aliens and entire species and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's, it's very much like, and, and look, credit to Claremont where it's due. The man is so foundational, uh, and his fingerprints are all over X-Men stuff, right? Um, there's a reason that the Dark Phoenix saga has been told at this point twice mm-hmm. in, in major motion pictures, but, um, that it one, I will say it is kind of weird that the cosmic life force, uh, uh, the cosmic symbol of all life shows a middle-class white woman from the suburbs as its closest visage 
on planet Earth. Like there's a literal storm goddess over there who's fed large chunks of sub-Saharan Africa. But the one who went to the prep school, she's she's the appropriate host (laughs) with her. The, the Phoenix literally says, you are most like me. It's like, really? Did you also go to a preparatory academy, Phoenix? <laughs> um, but but the, the response to uh, that sort of sexual assault and emotional violation, that kind of thing, is very masculine. It's very destroy everything, right? Uh, and plays into the trope of women being hysterical. Uh, and right. overly emotional, and the, the only way that they could possibly respond to it would be to lose their mind and then start slaughtering people. Because when you have that kind of power, that's what you do, right? So, yeah. well, and I, I think, and in, in it kind of tracks back to in, in so many, so many female characters. Like I think of Black Canary and Natasha, and at times Jessica Jones. Right? They they really get their character development because they've been sexually assaulted by men, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, really, you know, the the female character story is still being propelled forward by men mm-hmm. and the reaction to men and their relationship to men. Um. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, sexual assault as a plot point tends to pop up a lot. Um, Mr. Plow in the comments was bringing up actually, uh, no aggressively relaxing. If they're still there, I know they pop into the chat. It was often uh, Barbara Gordon and the killing joke. Mm -hmm. And basically stating that like Barbara is a trained fighter in a doorway confrontation. She would have taken Joker. I never thought about it that way. I've never thought about that. And then Joker, assaults are multiple different ways. And so um, Mm -hmm. it's a plot point. Yeah. And it's a plot point that almost exists for the torment of Jim Gordon. Yes. Right. Right. Like that. Cause that's the thing he like Joker traumatizes uh, Jim because it's not that the thing in and of it, it's not that the act in and of itself was traumatizing for Barbara Gordon. It's that the purpose of this is to traumatize her father. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. That's Um, gross. (laughs) Yeah, and we don't get the same story of uh, until maybe later uh, uh, with the way that we see Bruce Wayne pulling himself out of pits. Like every other story arc in Batman is Bruce Wayne's beaten to a pulp and he has to work his way out of a pit. And like, Mm -hmm. that's like Bruce Wayne's journey all the time. We don't see that with Oracle or I mean, we see with Oracle later, Oracle specifically with Mm -hmm. Gail Simone and Birds of Prey. And like, we see how badass Barbara Gordon is as a character and Gail Simone has done amazing work. And Mr. Plow brought up that Gail Simone literally started the the website with uh, girls in fridges, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, girlfriends in fridges and stuff. But like, um, uh, we don't see that with Barbara Gordon and Killing Joke. It's not about her. She's just a plot point. She's cast aside. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out with um, the new Thor, right? With uh, Jane Foster. Um, Because that story arc, I thought, was really interesting in that um, one, the mechanic of the idea of Jane Foster having to go through chemotherapy and then mm-hmm. what Mjolnir does to the body and it purges the chemo and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it, it yeah. wears down her time. But that's also not a story that involves some form of assault or violence, it's a race against the clock. And that's a very human thing, right? Yes. So hope, I'm not saying that they should give Jane Foster cancer uh, in, in you know, Love and Thunder, but that it should be something in that vein of just like a human experience that doesn't have to do with what people are, you know, conceptualize as the worst thing that can happen to a person, yeah. but doesn't happen to men in any of these stories either. 
or hardly ever in these hardly. stories. Hardly ever. Yeah. And we say hardly ever because we have a whole plethora and a whole history of male characters to draw from. So yeah. even if it happens one to one, if it happens for every female character that goes through cancer and whatever, a male character goes through cancer, because of the sheer amount of male characters, it's just yeah. a way smaller percentage. Sure, yeah. um, that I mean... Just as a side note, when Walking Dead would would kill their black characters, uh, yeah. and they would roughly kill a black character to every white character, and uh, an outsider, as you know, looking in, can say and does say, but they kill them equally. Yes, but their representation on the show is not equal. So you end up rotating through these black characters every season, literally whole new black characters every season. But the white characters, there's like twenty of them, yeah. and if it's a one for one thing we're still it's not the same what there was one season where they i remember watching it on tv and thinking they've gone through three black characters like and as soon as one dies they introduce the next one and then that one stays around for a few episodes and then dies right. it was like season four or something like that or season yeah. five where they just kept going through black characters right and yeah uh, and uh, the argument against our argument is that well, everybody dies in in Walking Dead, and everybody's dying equally. And I, it's not the, it's just not the same. So the it's same not. goes with female characters that go through these problems. You could say for every Barbara Gordon that deals with the the Joker, we can find a male character that does that. But there's so many male characters out there that like it's not the same. You're literally using up the whole wealth of wonderful female characters that you have. Mm-hmm. In that it, way, it's it's not the same. It will, and, and my favorite example of that gets to, um, I forget what season it was, but it was one where they found the prison in Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And one of the characters who had been with them from the beginning, I think his name was, I think they called him T-Dog. T-Dog. Theodore. T-Dog. Yeah. 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 And you know, he gets like five lines across uh, three seasons, right? Oh, right. And then the episode where you start to learn about him and how he used to like, drive a bus for old for an old folks home or something like that and how he used yeah. to help people literally that same episode maybe within the same few moments of him delivering those lines he gets killed right, right. and that's probably i think the best way to encapsulate the treatment of these characters um in terms of uh masculine characters because uh when you have that revelation of emotional vulnerability and dimension and depth they then get killed right right Right. And that's also playing into the horror trope of just mass women and people of color casualties. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, there's also tying of sexuality into horror trope. That's a whole different thing, but like, but it it's all overlapping. Yeah. Uh, as we, as we do come to a close in this episode, I want to ask you about the current state of comics and how these characters are being realized nowadays. Um, um, something that 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 I'm I'm seeing a lot more, and I think that this makes a huge difference, is not the representation of female characters and to male characters per se, but the female creators to male creators, the female artists, Peach Momoko, for example, let's just say, or or you know, uh, uh, female writers uh, to male writers, and our expansion of what masculinity is because of uh, expanding the uh um 
the diversity of even, let's just say, male writers uh, along uh, race lines. We have we have Asian American writers, we have uh, uh, African American writers, we have uh, female writers now, we have members of the LGBTQ plus community that are writing, that are allowing an expansion on what masculinity means. Uh, Marvel, for instance, is focusing a lot on Wiccan and, well, I don't even know if he goes by Wiccan anymore, Wiccan and Hulkling. Um, through the cosmic side of Marvel and their marriage um, is being focused on in the cosmic side of Marvel. They are male characters who are very powerful and they happen to be gay and married to each other. And it's, ex- it's expanding what we think of masculinity slowly, but surely. Um, Alexis, uh, do you have any, uh, I would love to hear your take on, the current state of comics where, you know, uh, I, I think there are people that feel more positively about it than I do. I, I feel like I am a, I'm a little bit of a Debbie Downer in that regard because I, I think I always think of progress in terms of how much more progress we have to make. Right. And, right. and, you know, it, it has been disappointing to see that even though there's a, a, a wider range of creators that are trying to make a difference that in, in several instances, we're still getting the same stories. So I think we've made progress, right? Um, but I, there's still, I, I don't want the progress that we've made to detract from the amount of progress that we need to make. Right. Um, okay. Sort of in that vein, um, I was thinking about, you know, comics I've read recently and I can't think of one that was written by a, a woman writer, um, mm. which is, Really unfortunate and sad as I say this out loud. Um, right. But even just now, I was like looking up, uh, one of my favorite comics is um, uh, Jean Grey, Nightmare Fuel. Um, and it's uh, the collected edition of the uh, the first volume of the Displaced from Time, Jean Grey. And I thought, oh, surely, mm-hmm. nope, that was written by dudes too. Mm-hmm. Um, what I am pleased to see, uh, you know, because as Alexis pointed out, there is always a lot uh, further to go. Um, if for no other reason than just because the broad reach of of these comics and who gets to have who gets to write the major characters and whatnot, but I am I am seeing some some really interesting developments. So like I've been rereading uh, Tana Hisi Coates's run on Black yes. Panther, right? <laughs> and there are some lines that stand out that I think would have been very difficult to conceptualize for uh, a masculine character of even maybe ten years ago, and that was like the note that. T'Challa is the king, but he doesn't want to be. He sees it as an obligation and a duty, not a calling. And that speaks a lot, I think, to the role that men think they have in society. And you know what? What are the potential? What is the potential uh, for for men to be more, you know, more dimensional, more emotionally healthy if we laid down the burden of what we think is our obligation mm-hmm. as opposed to who we would like to be. Um, and that version of T'Challa is also on a journey of empathy and learning to listen uh, and displacing himself as the center of his world uh, and rather valuing the perspectives of others. And so, um, you know, stuff like that. And, then, and, you know, there have been attempts at that with characters like Captain America, like when he left behind the shield and became the nomad for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatnot, but I I don't think that's the norm, certainly. And I look for I'm I'm optimistic about more trends like that, but it's an optimism couched in the fact that well the industry is what it is at this mm-hmm. point, and right things are getting better, but it's still a progress. Is is there less of a focus though, 
and I'm going to bring up uh, a specific point that I had in mind. Is there less of a focus on what we would think of as masculinity in the 90s? Uh, like the 90s action star is way different than the 2021 action star now, right? Even if we, if we think about movies and we're also thinking about comic books. Um, I've noticed a trend and it, it's tough with these trends because again, percentage wise, 200% increase, which is going from one to two, right? Like, great, it doubled. That's astronomical, but it's also like, well, we didn't have much. Uh, characters with compassion, male characters with compassion. Um, compassion being considered a positive trait in male characters, I think, um, is increasing. It's a small thing. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, a great example of that is like Captain America in Civil War. Um, we can, you know, we can debate the final points of whether or not he should have backed Bucky, but the fact is he did. And it was from a place of emotion and caring. Um, and also that profound ass whooping he handed Tony Stark was from a place of compassion and caring because he said the whole time, listen, my man, this is not the fight you want. And then he left him intact. Uh, he didn't like maim him horribly or something like that, uh, at the end, which, you know, I love Cap, but ain't beyond him um, in right. the comics. So I don't know. Like, I, I think there's there's some of that. And uh, I think there's room to grow some more, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's definitely. I'm, I'm with you guys. I'm trying to remain optimistic. But at the same time, like, you know, uh, I, in the years of my life, I've, I've seen a change. But I'm like, can we can we do this? Can we just like. Uh, to the point where, like, do we burn it down and then rebuild again? I don't know. But, like, the point being is that, like, come on, can we hurry up? Why do we need to ease in, for example, why do we need to ease into an Asian uh, uh, action hero? Yeah. Like, haven't we been easing in? Why do why why would Shang-Chi need to be, like, a half-step? Uh, yeah. uh, I don't think it was a half-step, but I'm just saying, like, why do people want it to have been a half-step instead of a full-step? What is... Does it take getting used to that there are Asians and Asian Americans and Asian Canadians that like are out there doing their thing, being romantic leads in their own life? Because I think that that's also a big thing that it's a, a, a the idea of race overlapping with romantic leads and the lack of masculinity or the hyper masculinity of certain races being portrayed in media, at least, uh, uh, is a big thing for me. And so I'm like. I don't know. I just I just dumped a lot right now, but uh, 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 I think things are getting better, and I think that like we need to stop taking half steps. We're fine. We can take full steps forward. Uh, I was going to say, remember that time Jake Gyllenhaal played the Prince of Persia? Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I do uh, now. <laughs> I mean, uh, very similar vein of like Egyptian gods. What was that movie? God, oh, gods no. of Egypt, yeah. gods of Egypt, where it's like in Hollywood, the only thing separating an Egyptian from a white person is eyeliner. That's literally it. Like, just put buddy, eyeliner, you know. Uh, it reminds me of a buddy of mine in grad school had a presentation he did for a class that was called uh, Sweaty Bowl Cuts Do Not Make You a Roman. And in that same vein, I think that eyeliner does not make you an Egyptian. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Great. No. Great. And, and not just an Egyptian, Egyptian god. Right. Like, I feel like that's the level of of arrogance to be like, 
I don't know. Listen. Tom Tom Hanks playing a Nazi. You know, like well, do we do we need that? Gerard Butler is in my personal pantheon, but I wouldn't cast him as an Egyptian as, god. Right. Yeah. Right. Um uh you're right when you when we were bringing up female writers writing comics right now. I think there are more than there used to be, but even then they're not they're not doing um the main titles, the bestseller stuff. Uh somebody brought up somebody on a previous episode, I think the Spider-Man episode that we did a couple weeks ago, um how many female writers have written Spider-Man? Well, I'd love to see a woman write like Captain America, right? I, I think right. that would be, a, you could get some particularly interesting stories, especially in regards to masculinity out of that. Right. How would y'all feel about um, about Moon Knight having a uh, female personality? See, I, I'm actually kind of surprised that we haven't gotten that yet. I think that would be something interesting to explore. I am too, because he had Cap in there. He had Logan and mm-hmm. Spider-Man, right? So we've seen that the characters like aren't exactly static necessarily, mm-hmm. right? So what about what about characters? What about you know what if his uh, multiple personality disorder uh, takes on or his schizophrenia takes on you know female characters? Mm-hmm. I'm also a little scared at the idea, quite honestly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he brings up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it also falls into the shape-shifting man who can shape-shift into a woman. I think mm-hmm. that it falls into that same idea mm-hmm. of, like, again, his what, his personality is shape-shifting, right? So, mm-hmm. like, in a way, yeah. so whether we still take on those same, same, um, mm-hmm. you know, things that we yeah, get, yeah. where, of course, a female shapeshifter is going to shapeshift into a male. <laughs> of course. They're yeah. moving on up. Yeah, but I was like, about to say, why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, but oh, but oh god, that reminds me of a great um of a great line from the from the uh, Vaughn run of um uh, the series Mystique, where he uh, Mystique is talking trash about another mutant who can change bodies, but she can hop between bodies, but only other women. Mm-hmm. And Mystique says, "What's the point of having a power where you can change bodies if you can't look like the jerks who run it?" Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, for the sake of time, not for the sake of subject matter. I mean, we could talk forever about all this. Um, uh, but I want to thank you guys so much, uh, uh, Gabe and Alexis for coming onto the show and bear. I mean, we scratched the surface uh, of, of this topic and these are the type of things they, they all overlap with each other, but the key in their discussions, my discussions, our discussions, uh, uh I want to be able to hit these like, important topics that, that we have, you know, and so more are to come. Sure, some weeks we talk about just our love of Spider-Man. And then uh other weeks we're talking about masculinity in comics or race in the MCU or 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 minority representation and, and whatnot. And so uh uh it's really uh it's a grab bag as far as this show is concerned. But I want to thank you two for coming on to this and having uh these discussions uh that uh I know are, are helpful for me and helpful to the audience out there um uh wherever they are i know i know there were a couple of people commenting but um i want to thank the audience out there for paying you know uh being a part of this watching this whether it's live streamed on our many platforms or podcast um but as we uh, uh wrap up and uh get ready to go uh where can we find you guys uh i want to know your social media out loud for the podcast so that they can hear it because people in the live stream can see it 
um, if I can get your, your social media, uh, any plugs that you want to do, anything big coming up, I would love to hear it. Uh, Gabe, what do you got? Yeah, so uh, I am on uh, Instagram and Twitter at GA Cruz underscore PhD. Um, and I'm on TikTok at Dr. Dot underscore C. I have a, uh, a podcast called Office Hours with Dr. C. And uh, we talk about like pop culture and stuff and what have you. We also get into some other things that I, because I also study like white nationalism and propaganda and things like that. So that sort of dips in there a little bit too. So, um, but yeah, that's where I can be found. Awesome. Uh, do you have anything big coming up other than your podcast or is your podcast like? Uh, so, so I just had that book chapter come out uh, in a book called about uh, Black Panther and Afrofuturism. Um, and my chapter is on how Wakanda operates as a colonial power uh, and how that created the hybrid identity of Killmonger, that kind of stuff. I got another book chapter coming out, I think this month, this is being September when we're recording on um, white nationalist propaganda on uh, college campuses because the Nazis have been busy uh, for the last five years. And I've got a book chapter that's coming out uh, next year, I believe on X-Men actually where I talk about the X-Men, uh, the, the book is on the X-Men animated series from the 1990s. And my chapter is on uh, Mystique and how she occupies this weird space of being uh, coded as a woman of color uh, and sort of mm -hmm. the tropes that factor into that as well as um, her position as a exploited worker. Um, mm. So that is all that. Um, I, by the way, from those books, I don't profit anything. So if you buy them, that's great. I don't get any money. <laughs> if you don't buy them, that's great too. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. All right. Um, uh, Alexis, what is your social media? What are your plugs? Where can we find you? What do you got coming up? I know that you're constantly busy with so many different things. And <laughs> hear about them all. Um, I'm at Alexis Blake Reads Comics on TikTok and Instagram, and you can go to my bio there and, and find out my schedule of events and all of my other handles. But I do um, a weekly show on Friday recapping um, whatever What If episode aired that week um, with Liz, uh, producer Liz from Stark Radio, and we discuss like representation and storytelling and the things that Marvel is doing with that. And then um, on Saturday nights, um, I host a rewatch on TikTok of leverage where we talk a lot about you know representation in in grifting and con and heist shows so. yeah i i love your uh uh your show your what if after show because um i'm it, it's so crazy how we can all watch the same thing and have different thoughts and different reactions to it and um it used to be i guess before i started uh these shows and whatever just being like yeah 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 you know everybody's thinking the same way i'm in. like this is obviously this and this is obviously that and then you know whatever i don't need to think about the rest uh and then i watch your guys' show and i'm like oh yeah i think it's oh. funny because typically liz and i have thought that everybody must be on the same page that we are uh right. when we do this show and then pretty much as soon as it airs the inbox gets filled with like oh that was the way i was i was supposed to see it so it's what if has been a particularly interesting show for that i've recapped other shows that i feel like people were more on the same page about but i feel like right. what if has kind of been a has, has made people think maybe more than they thought they would yeah uh uh well i i love tuning in on that so uh keep up the good work um uh Sorry, I just saw a comment. But anyway, um, uh, thank you to you two for coming on the show and having these talks with me. Um, this show wouldn't uh, 
it would just be me talking and I don't want that. Um, so thank you for bringing your own uh, input and life experiences and uh, uh, educational background and knowledge to this show to talk about like something that is kind of uh, uh, a heavy hitting topic. I appreciate having both of you on the show. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Awesome. Uh, thank you. Thank you to the audience out there. Uh, you know where to catch us. Uh, YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, volume.com slash the Keeg show. Uh, we also have a podcast on uh, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, pretty much you could, you could throw a dart at a board and you'll probably hit where we do our podcast. Uh, as well as, uh, if you follow us on Instagram and TikTok at the Keeg show, uh, that's, uh, where we upload videos and keep everybody informed on what the schedule is on shows. We have multiple shows, multiple shows a week. So definitely stay tuned on what our schedule is. Um, uh, we have Instagram live chats and so on and so forth. So we definitely stay busy here at the Keeg. Uh, but thank you once again to the audience out there. Thank you to Gabe. Thank you to Alexis for coming on the show. Once again, I'm your host, Dimitri Pereira. This has been the Keeg Live talking about masculinity in comics. Take care, everybody. Peace out. Super 